2: and welcome to History Rage, where we invite our leading historians to get angry about the altered facts and obvious bias within our public perception. The podcast where myth is struck out of the record for public good. I am your regular host Paul Bavel and I'm recording today live at the Gloucester History Festival, offering 150 talks over two weeks from the beautiful setting of Blackfriars Priory in the heart of this historic city. And continuing our special collection for the final weekend of the festival, I am joined by historian, president of the Gloucester History Festival. Raider of the Lost Past, and dare I say, a goth that may well have sacked Rome. <laughs> you yeah, Nina Ramirez. Nina, welcome oh, to History Rage. Oh, thank
1: you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. When I got the message saying the concept for this podcast, that it's a rage about something that makes you really angry, I thought, where to start? But we have managed to narrow it down a bit. And yeah. of course, we are coming from a festival with all its ambient noise. So um, you've caught me in my role as lifetime president of Gloucester History Festival, yeah, literally on the ground. <laughs>
2: yeah, ne- next year you will be dictator for life. Glossary oh, that's History it. Festival. I'm slowly
1: <laughs> working my, my way up to demagogue, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I,
2: I first encountered your work with actually two of your TV projects is where I first stumbled across you. The first being Chivalry and Betrayal, if oh. you can think about that far back. And then Dan snows a year to conquer England, which I believe didn't you play the role of Harold Hardrada? Harold Godwinson, <laughs> Harold
1: Godwinson actually, actually, I was a very ballsy Harold Godwinson. <laughs> no, I mean um chivalry and betrayal. Gosh, that's really going back. But that was that was a big project to do mm. because it was the first time the Hundred Years' War had been done. Uh, on, on television and you know i know why now because <laughs> it's blooming hard getting around all those sites and in the 1066 project how cool to have a woman in there as one of the yeah. two kings and a duke i thought it worked really well and yeah. it was, it's still being shown in classrooms up and down the country when the kids are doing 1066 i've still so. got it
2: on record on virgin Excellent. So, uh, you know don't, don't, don't record it. over it <laughs> no absolutely won't i i loved it
1: oh thank you um,
2: but before we dig into your rage, could you just take a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about you and your career and how you ended up here um but also more importantly for this one the festival that you are dictator for life of
1: oh dictator for life yes uh, i oh how did I get here It's one of those random sort of well I mean as I could do three hours really um I'm not your traditional academic historian in many ways. I went to school in Slough and I, you know, Polish-Irish immigrant stock and all the rest of it. So I didn't really get the uh, the the uh hand up, <laughs> if you like, but lots of graft, got my A's and got myself to Oxford and then didn't intend to be an academic, wanted to go off and be a lawyer and make money and have a fast car and a penthouse suite and all yeah. that. So then, and then I got bitten by the Old English bug. It was Old English poetry. It got Ooh. right under my skin. Beowulf, the Wanderer, the Dreamer, the Rude. And my destiny was sealed. And then the, the, I suppose the big turning point was that every woman in my family, going back as far as we know, um, on both sides was was a teacher. And I remember growing up my mum going, you will be a teacher. I was like, No, I won't. You don't get, you know, no, you're not getting me. And she said, No, you will, you will, you will. And I'd be doing my PhD. And as part of my funding, I had to do three hours of lecturing. And I'd saved it right up to the end. I was dreading it, didn't want to do it. Terrified. I was so scared of getting up in a lecture theatre. I was sick the night before. I was so nervous. And I got up on stage, and within five minutes, I was like, damn it, my mum is right. Because the, it's almost addictive teaching. And when you start to see the light bulbs go off in people's eyes, it's, like a, it's, a, it's something you want more of. Mm. And actually, that was me cutting my teeth with public speaking as well. Um, yeah. And then TV was a complete accident. I'd written a mad thesis about birds in Anglo-Saxon England. Someone from the BBC was looking for somebody that knew about Anglo-Saxon art. My name came up on Google. And the rest is uh, history. Really, yeah. that's it. It all came from then, and and really, you know, people say to me, "How'd you get into television?" I said, "Accident, luck, and tons of hard work." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I work really, really hard, um, and and that's that's the only way you know that I could have done it mm. is just graft. Really,
2: yeah. Uh, and the festival then. Have you been with the festival since it started?
1: So there were a few years I wasn't. Uh, president, but I did come and speak. Um, I fell in love with Gloucester when I was making another program. It was Architects of the Divine. yeah. And I was taken up onto the top tower of, of Gloucester Cathedral, which I have to say, yeah, if we're doing top trump's ca- cathedrals, Gloucester's got to be the top trump card. It is so beautiful. Um, and I was taken up by the mason, Pascal, and he said, look down over there. There's Cheltenham. They've got loads of money and a brilliant festival and they've got all this you know, stuff going mm. on. And then look at Gloucester. We've got all the history, but we are, you know, we've got um, po- poverty. We've got unemployment. We've got drug problems. We've got all these issues in our little city and nobody comes to Gloucester. And I yeah. thought, I want to do something about that. I want to make a difference to this city. It deserves to have pride in its history and its mm. past then they asked me to get involved and, and that's been eight years now. This is my eighth, yeah, I'm coming yeah. into my ninth year as president. Yeah, and I'm you, so proud of it.
2: You should be. You and should you can actually be. hear
1: the buzz now of the talks is finished and people are coming out and, and you're really getting the atmosphere. But yeah, it, it's just going from strength to strength.
2: Yeah, I, I look forward to being part of it in the future. Definitely. So now that we've got the thing that you're most proud of, let's dive into the thing that really <laughs> eats away at yourself. soul. <laughs> rage. Yes, indeed. So... Today, what is the one thing that you wish everybody would just stop believing, get over or just deal with?
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, I had to narrow it down, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I thought I'd focus on uh, the subject of my book, Feminar, A New History of the Middle Ages through the Women Written Out of It, and the rage that got me to write that book. And the rage was the assumption that women have... Always been uh lesser than men across history, really. Mm. The idea that we're the second sex, always have been, that's how it's always been, and that's only recently are we moving towards anything approaching gender equality. Um the reason I landed on this, and the reason I landed on the title actually, Feminine, I was making um A documentary on Julian of Norwich, the wonderful anchoress who wrote Revelations of Divine Love in the 14th century. Incredible human being. Mm. And um, her original manuscript has been lost. We've got copies, later copies of it. But one of the premises for this documentary was, let's see if we can find it. Let's see if we can find this manuscript. Where would it be if it's going to be anywhere? And we knew that it had travelled over to France with a group of English nuns. And we knew that during the French Revolution, the holdings of that convent these English nuns were in, were taken into municipal libraries, into local libraries. Um, and then we don't know what happened after that. So we started investigating libraries, at small, you know, town libraries. Yeah. And in a lot of them, there are still these boxes from revolutionary times where things were just sort of shoved in for safekeeping but have never been fully catalogued or documented. So we're going through it. i mean, this particular one with a, a young curator, an enthusiastic guy, and he's like, let me show you these things. And he shows me the uh library listings, the, the sort of the receipts, if you like, of the books that are being held in the library at any one time. Yeah. And there's one uh, from the uh, 18th century and it's got all these names. Uh, so 17th century and, and it's got all these book titles. And then there's one from about 50 years later. And what you can see is they've used the original one as a model and then they've crossed out all the books that have been lost or destroyed from the earlier library. Yeah. So this is literally book burning before your eyes. This is literally, you know, book banning happening in real time. And, and I'm watching, I'm looking at all the titles and there's a reason that some of these books have been destroyed and you can see written in the margin. Sometimes it says heretical, witchcraft, sorcery, uh, unorthodox and sort of a line. And there was just this one and it was a line and it said, Femina written by a woman. (laughs) And I thought, Wow.
2: Christ, yeah. that's
1: a reason to get rid of this book. Amazing. So that was my rage. I was so angry to have before my eyes an obvious example of women being actually written out of the record. Yeah. That I was like, well, what happens if we try and find them? What happens if we go back to the evidence, the raw evidence from the time? Can we find them? And um, dear friend Mark Morris had written this wonderful book called The Anglo-Saxons a few years earlier. And justifiably, because he's using textual evidence, he said in his introduction, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, as as far as the textual evidence is Mm -hmm. concerned, it's impossible to tell the the lives of medieval, early medieval women. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and I I saw that as a bit of a challenge. I was like, okay, well, if they're not in the texts, can we find them in archaeology? Can we find them in art? Can we find them in the landscape? What can I do? What tools can I draw together to put these people who were there, 50% of the population, how do I put them back in the picture? And what I discovered was revelatory. It was so extraordinary.
2: Okay so would you take an opportunity then and I appreciate you could go on for quite some time <laughs> on this one uh, but tell us a bit about some of the people then that you've found that have been written out of the history and mm. the ones that you've managed to put back in
1: mm. so uh what what again was part of my rage part of my anger at finding this deliberate example mm. of of women being written out was I thought well, well that's it then obviously this has been a, a Concerted effort to take women out of the record, but it became much more complicated than that. And what I realised is, in each instance I was dealing with, sometimes the women were written out even, you know, almost immediately after death. In the case of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, it's her brother Edward that removes her from the annals, from the textual record. So it's very close to her lifetime. Yeah. Other times you see. Quite a massive time delay and then the woman being written out. But in some cases, like Hildegarda Bingen, who's, who's really one of my favorite characters in the book, she's never fully written out. Her reputation in her locale, in, in her region of Germany she's remembered she's honored she's uh you Mm. know cited copied you know people return to her texts um and then you've got people who were never really written out but were lost so marjorie kemp it wasn't until her book was discovered in the 1930s the book of marjorie kemp this extraordinary medieval text that uh people realized she existed um Mm. so what i ended up having to do was nuance the book to show that you know it's not it's not a one-size-fits-all that women did have agency, and then they didn't. Yeah. There's there's different ways to to sort of weave the story, uh, and each of the women tell a different side of that story.
2: Okay, would you would you share a few of their stories? Because you have just given me a whole load of women that, because they've been written out of history, I have never heard. Really? Of. Okay. So, oh, now, now is well. your chance to write that. Balance. I feel like
1: they should be household names. Absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you one, which was particularly exciting because it was happening. In, as I was writing the book, um, just before it was going to print, there was a, an excavation being carried out in Cookham on the Banks of the Thames mm-hmm. uh, by a team from Reading University. Lovely, lovely team of people in search of kinethrit. Now, have you heard of Kinethrit?:
2: I haven't heard of Kinethrit.
1: Right. But have you heard of her husband, Offa? King Offa.
2: Yes. There no. you go. Heard, heard of the ditch, not <laughs> the man. It, that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Everyone
1: knows his ditch. <laughs> um, this, is, this, is, this is my bugbear. This is yeah. my rage. You know, everybody. I can say it in a room full of people. Do you know Cunhafrith? No. Do you know Offa? Yeah. They ra- ra- ruled as during rulers. And she is extraordinary because she had coins minted with her image on it. Mm. Now, think about that. Think about... If tomorrow King Charles said, okay, I'm going to have my coins in circulation with my face on it, but I'm also going to have a bunch of coins made with Camilla's face on it, and we're going to use them simultaneously, that doesn't happen. Um, And this was what was happening in the case of Kynothra. So we knew that this woman existed. We knew she was incredible. The fact that her name, her reputation, almost all of that is lost. Uh, is down to subsequent historians and what they've chosen to focus on now yeah. if you think about the victorians for example
2: i try not so- to but i let's, know let's go. they do creep
1: <laughs> into your sideline don't they um their whole uh, uh, the, the thing about history is obviously it's rewritten by each generation yeah. and to suit the ends and to suit the ideologies of the people it's in service to um And in the case of the Victorians, the stories they wanted to circulate were ones of adventure, empire, exploration, you know, conquest, heroes. So they selected the texts that were most useful to transmit. And anything that wasn't was lost, destroyed, ignored. Mm. And women fell into that category. But what we do know, going back and looking at both the material evidence and the textual evidence that remains, is there were many... It, particularly through the church, you'd think the Catholic <laughs> Church would actually be quite a repressive institution for women. But what you see in the no. medieval period is it's a facilitator. So I found the origin of the phrase place uh, places in the home," right? And it's Calvin, and it's the Protestant Reformation where that coin They the phrase ruin everything. They, don't they? Well, dare I say this? But <laughs> God's on the truth, right? The situation before and after the Protestant Reformation uh, for women was revolutionary, transformative in the negative, yeah, okay, so what you had up to that point was yes, the majority of women would be married, have children you uh, they might work in various uh, industries, they mm-hmm. might work the land they they would be involved in all sorts of guilds, um they had a lot of agency in the secular world. But there was this other option that was open to women from the 6th century onwards, 7th century onwards, sorry, uh, which is that they could go into a convent or they yeah. could be an anchoress or they could be even like in the case of Marjorie Kemp, a secular woman who preached on theological, discussed theological matters. Religion was this sort of gateway that they were able to go through. And through that, they were able to enter these spaces. And when we think of a monastery or a convent today, we think of quite a pious, closed, quiet space. yes. Yeah. That was not what a medieval monastery looked like. It was the heart of industry. You had crafts and and tooling, you know, all these things going on. They were centers of intellect, educational establishments, libraries, scriptorium. They were the publishing houses, the Mm -hmm. sort of powerhouses. Uh, They were rich and and luxurious places where there was music and art. And um, in the case of Kinnathrith, you know, that's what they were finding at Cookham was this massive palatial complex that was a coffin yeah. and then what the, the women are living in there safe from the um, need to be married off and potentially die during childbirth safe from threats in single-sex communities that were kind of supportive and and intellectually stimulating. Mm -hmm. And in these spaces, women achieved great, great things. So I mentioned Kinnathworth being sort of abbess as queen, but it's in this environment in the 12th century that Hildegard of Bingham comes into her own she enters a double monastery in disney men and women together in this vibrant huge like almost like a city up on a hill uh in disney yeah. and then she sets up two of her own convents so coming out of this double monastery environment in disney men and women uh she learnt so much there she didn't she learned about natural sciences medicine she worked in the uh, with the sick, uh, She she learned about music, about theology, about philosophy. You know, she was learning all this, cutting her teeth. And then she goes and sets up her own comments And she becomes an international superstar, best-selling author. And she starts touring. She does a book tour in the 12th century. But she has got the ear off. Bernard de Clairvaux, the other best-selling author of his time. Yep. The Pope, yep. who is at Absolutely, 100% behind her work. Um, and the emperor, Barbarossa. So this woman, she's she's also known as the Sybil of the Rhine because she sort of, she chastises these international world leaders on their behaviour. She advises them. She is just a woman of the world and yet not of it, because she's also creating this this rich intellectual space and cultural space in her convents. Yeah. Um, the music she writes is unlike anything you've ever heard. If if your listeners do one thing, if they go on YouTube and download Hildegard Bingen's music, you'll just be blown away. Uh, and she was an artist and she I mean she was the ultimate polymer. Um, and she was allowed to thrive in that moment, in that time, by the men and women around her. She was supported. You know, she was held up, lifted yeah. up. And she wasn't the only one. I mean, just in her locale, there was Harald of Lansberg, who Her and her sisters were writing this extraordinary encyclopedia, historical encyclopedia. And that's just the ones that have managed somehow to cling on to their reputation over time. Think yeah. who we've lost. Think who has been written out. Yeah, Think, 50%
2: what, of the population.
1: 50% of the population. And intellectuals of towering abilities. And that's the other thing. Who is anonymous? All these texts we have that are anonymous, how many of them potentially were written by women? Yeah. You know, and have just been overwritten by men later or, you
0: know. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Burrow dot com slash acast.
2: So, do we know why these people are being written out of history? Then,
1: because it doesn't suit the narrative. After the Reformation, the monks in in these in vibrant environments they were offered the opportunity. I mean, it was a relatively bloodless thing. We always think of the Reformation as sort of monks being beheaded all over the place mm. and the rest of it. It wasn't. I mean, there was only a couple of actual um, deaths the Abbot of Glastonbury being one of them. But um, most of the men were offered a pension or they were (laughs) offered a job to continue working within the Protestant church. Men had a space there. But the convents were closed with no option. And at that point, they were told the women's place is in the home. So suddenly this option that had been there for women for nearly a millennium is removed, and once you remove that, you then have to create a new understanding of your relationship with the past. What the ref- what the reformers, and then later on the industrial revolutionists, and then later on the Victorians, what each generation then ends up doing is casting the medieval period as a time of superstition, ignorance, yeah. backwardness. Because we are modern and thrusting yeah. and forward-thinking. These people
2: die at thirty; they don't watch. Bingo! They, yeah. it's,
1: it's like nothing exciting happened You don't want to know about that as a Dark age, and that is a deliberate piece of propaganda. It's saying, "Out with the old, in with the new." This is the new status quo, and there is not a place for women to be equals in this status quo. In fact, there's, there's a you know there's not an opportunity for classes to be equal or for races to be equal or for people of you know this is becoming an increasingly elite society, mm-hmm. shed, sort of spreading its sense of itself across the globe. And women's narratives are not going to play a positive role within that, except for the couple. You know, you get your yeah. Elizabeth the you get your Victoria, and they're turned into these sorts of you can't impossible really hide virgin from them, queen. Can no, you? I, but they're like again in the service of the state, aren't they? They're part of this sort of national identity of, of you know, Elizabeth, in particular, virgin queen and Britannia, and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's it's all it's so interesting. I'm a medievalist, and so I always tend to look. From quite the deep, distant past forwards. Yeah. Whereas, like a lot of historians and and huge you know, general readers around history, tend to think ourselves backwards. But of course, the people going through these moments, they don't know what's coming. They only know what's mm. gone before. So you have to always look before it and see. Well, what what led to this? What led to that? What why was that the result? Why have we ended up where we are? And. It's interesting because the suffragettes, I opened the book with the suffragettes, and the suffragettes knew this. They knew their medieval history. And uh, they, I mean, Joan of Arc was the poster girl for the suffragettes, as it, yeah. as it is. But more than that, you know, Emily, um, the, the fair idea of Fair Emily written into Chaucer, was was again something that sort of fired them up, that they knew there was a time when women had agency, and they found themselves at the turn of the 20th century without agency, and actually the suffragettes were looking backwards, and they were saying, we want back what we used to have they weren't looking forward, we're going to forge a new path for women so they're going to be CEOs of companies, they weren't thinking that they were thinking back to something that had been taken from them, and I find that really illuminating. When I yeah. hit on that, I was like, "Whoa, that's oh yeah.
2: there kind is of... my pay dirt. That totally. is, there is my career in text. That's yeah. it.
1: That's that's the way of thinking back. Yeah, 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 yeah."
2: So, if you're going to take a, if you're going to airbrush a history, <laughs> then, like you say, it's it, it's all about creating this narrative where there is no room for this. But if, yeah. if you're going to create the narrative at that time, there's an awful lot of evidence of women already there that people are going to know about you're going to have to create you can't just leave that gap yeah so what what sort of false history starts to come about to replace the real history of some of these people is
1: where to start you know i mean and it isn't just women let me make that Hmm. clear as well i think that the one of the main problems is that as I mentioned, women have a role within the Catholic Church right from its origins in the British Isles, you know, with Hilda of Whitby and mm-hmm. some of these extraordinary early pioneers of monasticism were women. Yeah, um, And they found this space. Uh, but when you're rebuilding a modern world or building a modern world, rather, when you are trying to forge something that is pushing against what's gone before, It's everything that's Catholic. It's everything that's part of that worldview that you're trying to replace, to remove. So it's men and women. Uh, Women, of course, are kind of an obvious uh, place to start. If it's written by a woman, get rid of that text. Don't copy it. Lose it. It doesn't need to be preserved. But as I mentioned, heresy, heretical beliefs are are another thing that are going to mean your text doesn't survive. And that's Mm -hmm. the problem. When we look for a text... A, you know, a text, a book, a manuscript, these things, they move, but they could be destroyed. They could be burnt. You can literally erase those words from yeah. the historical record. People have known that since the dawn of time, hence history is written by the victors. But you cannot erase them necessarily from the landscape. or from the land or their bones and you can't necessarily stop metal detectorists picking up their brooches or their you know um their objects that they worked with so i think it's collecting the information together and it's also looking in unexpected places so i mentioned earlier apple flood lady of the mercians she's big in gloucester she um she is responsible for the blueprint of Gloucester as it is today. Extraordinary woman. You'll know her dad, Alfred the Great. Yes,
2: heard of him. Yeah, yep. so this is
1: a similar thing, isn't it? It's Alfred <laughs> and Kinnathrith again. But you don't know his daughter, Arthur's Lady of the Mercians, um, or she's lesser known, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, Last Kingdom has done of it to, to change that, to get us to think about her as the leader that she was. But um, I mentioned that it's her brother, uh, Edward, who, who changes how she's recorded. So he... He sees her ultimately as an ally, but as a threat. She marries the Earl of Mercia, Athelred, coming as she is from the House of Wessex, but having a Mercian mum herself. And what I do again in the book is I keep looking backwards, keep looking backwards. Where did we get Athelflaed from? We got her from Kynothrith, from this generations of great Mercian women. Mercian women who did it completely differently to how the other women across Christendom were doing things. They forged a path. That we pick Mer- um, Ethelfled up in the, you know, the ninth se- uh, in the ninth tenth century, but she's come from these origins that are in the seventh eighth century. Um, and Ethelfled, when her husband, he was much older than her, he dies, and um, the the council, the people of Mercia, unanimously elect her as their leader, Lady of the Mercians, and she. She rules yeah. the kingdom and then she joins up with her brother after her father's death to complete all. Of, Alfred didn't do the thing, didn't do all the things he set out to do. Athelflaed completed them. The burgle system, the arrangement of our towns, the instilling of education and literacy across what is now England. As yeah. She pushed all, she pushed the Vikings so far back, she managed to get them to York. And then she dies unexpected. We don't know how. We don't know why. But her ultimate triumph would have been to take York and unite England as we know it today. But her untimely death meant that it was her nephew, Athelstan, that gets that
2: reputation. Gets that glory.
1: And she's written out in the between. But she survives in the annals of the people she fought against. Right in the yeah. Irish Viking annals, in um, Viking annals that are preserved in Scandinavia, they refer to her as greater than Caesar. You know, she—they—they mm. they record her her deeds, the things that she did. So, by looking in these other texts and sort of doing some detective work, she comes <laughs> back into focus. And what a woman she was!
2: Yeah, it—it it, it sounds it. Yeah. It sounds. So throughout history, we see a number of examples of prominent women whose history shows quite remarkable success hmm. but then tinged with some form of failure or misfortune and <laughs> um, the three class examples i have is like Boudica sacks colchester but still gets defeated yeah. you've got um joan of arc wins battles with the french armies but still gets burnt piracy yeah you've got marie curie discovers radium and then dies of the effects of radium. Do we see this pattern of women's history where it's been allowed to remain if there is some sort of failure attached to it?
1: I can't say I've seen that pattern systematically. Um, I mean, you could say the same about male rulers, male influencers. There may be the tinge of of regret in, in some of their lives. But I think it's more... What I discovered, actually, was how easy. A lot of medieval women had it. Um, mm. Marjorie Kent, you know, she reinvents herself over and over. So she's living um, at the start, you know, end of the 14th into the 15th century in Kingsland. And and she's born into a wealthy family. Her father is, uh, you know, very high up in the, in the in the town. She marries a man who's also got a lot of responsibility within Lynn and a lot of wealth. And she starts out, she wants to try her hand at a bit of entrepreneurial businesses. She try, sets up a beer brewing company, that fails. Sets up a mill, that fails. Um, and yet she keeps getting another go, another chance. And then, and she has 15 children. And then she decides, hang on a minute. There's this...
2: how, how do you run a mill yeah, and yeah. have 15 yeah. children? Well, you don't, that's <laughs> why the mill
1: failed. <laughs> Too many children. Um, and then she's sort of looking over on the continent and there's this woman, Bridget of Sweden. And she's a laywoman. So she's not a, a, a nun. She, is, uh, she also has lots of children. But she set herself up as this lay saint, almost, like a, a mystic. So it's this mystical tradition that's starting up on the continent. And Hildegard is, of course, a mystic as well. But women mystics were this sort of loophole that women found to corner the sort of saints market. Yeah. And she you can do that while up. you're alive. Yes, it exactly. is. do need well, to be no, dead. This is yeah. it. Mystics can do it while they're alive. And so she's seeing that Bridget's getting a international tour. Everyone's dressing in white because that's what Bridget does. She's like the celebrity of the moment. Mm. Marjorie says, I could try my hand at that. And she has suffered postpartum depression after the birth of one of her children. And in the process of having that, she has become delusional uh, um, and seen visions. But she taps into these visions and she says that she is the beloved of Christ, that they yeah. are intimate with each other. She even visualises marrying Jesus and Mary and the saints all being guests Ooh. at the wedding, right?
2: Really heretical I stuff, I know, huh? well,
1: you'd think, except that she's got the ear of everyone. She then ends up whining, dining, travelling the length and breadth of the world. She goes to Jerusalem, she goes to Poland, she goes to, 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 to visit Bridget's territories. She is living the life. And in the midst of all that, she makes her husband... Um, agree that she is a virgin again and he will never touch her again (laughs) and one of the most heartfelt bits of the book the book is honestly it's extraordinary if you want to get a three dimensional idea of people of the past women of the past in particular read the book of marjorie because she is everything she screams she cries she rants she raves she's this absolute figure of complete sort of Complexity, and and yet, um, and and her supporting cast, her long-suffering husband is there, um, and, and you know all the people, the, the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of Norwich. She's rubbing up against all these characters. She even meets with my favourite Julian of Norwich mm. and records her voice. Her. Her, um, her sort of very distinctive approach to life. So yeah, this is what I wanted to do in this book. I wanted to show the people of the past are us. They're as complicated, as complex, as fascinatingly um, you know, difficult as we are. Yeah. Uh, but we sort of see them from a distance, you know?
2: Okay, so to wrap things up then, how much of history do you think we have to root and branch re-examine to deal with this? And how are you... And future historians going to go about it.
1: Yeah, I'm loving this now. The festival's got really noisy. You can even just hear the bells of the cathedral in the background. It's like the whole of Gloucester's kind of behind me here in my yeah. rage. Uh, <laughs> I I think first off, we have to acknowledge our role as historians, what we do. We have to be really honest about it. Um, you, you would get a sense in historical books... Um, certainly the 50 years ago that the historian is the arbiter of truth the holder of wisdom and knowledge the, the, the one with all the facts and the mm. figures and the opinions we are, we are interpreters, we are storytellers we are writing with our own agendas, I'm writing yeah. with my own bias, I want to see the past as a diverse place because that is the present I live in and I want to find myself in the past I want to know what happened to the 50% of the population so I come at history with my hands held high to say this is how we have to do it we have to be open and honest so that's the first step I think the next step is that we have to look for different sources I think by I was, as a medievalist, I have to be interdisciplinary because mm-hmm. I don't have that glut of textual evidence. If I was doing, you know, World War II, it would take me three years just to work through, you know, the newspapers published within one month. Yeah. but it's not i don't have that i don't have those resources so i do look at art i do uh look at the archaeology i do think about the theology the philosophy of the time i do try and look at the literature alongside the sort of historical texts and i think that's a really helpful way to look to the past because think about it right mm. if you're going to describe to someone in 100 years what it's like to be alive right now would you just give them the headlines of the sunday times or would you say we were listening to this music we were wearing these clothes we were um yeah this was the sort of atmosphere of the town at the, uh, one night when i was out this yeah. is the place i live in you would be building that sort of holistic view of the time in which we live rather than boxing it all up and treating it as as something to be sort of analyzed from a from afar so i think that sort of immersion into the past is really important you're feeling your way back into the past yeah um and then otherwise just think, follow the passion, and follow the stuff that hasn't been done. So many things have been done to death. But Nazis, where's and F- Tudors, Nazis, Tudors, uh, and I, you know, I, I used to call Channel Five "Nazi Sharks" channel because it used to all just be yeah. like, if it's not sharks, it's Nazis. Um, but we've done it okay we've done it why don't we find the other stories why don't we find everybody else and let's bring a bit of egalitarianism to our approach to history maybe not just the kings and the queens and the rich and the wealthy yeah. how about how everyone else lives how about I mean that's why things like A House Through Time and Who Do You Think You Are work so well we want to know where, where our own histories don't we yeah we want um, people
2: we can relate to
1: exactly and we used to push those areas of history to the peripheries local history genealogy women's history uh, queer you know, uh, queer history these things used to be pushed to the edges but now we can bring them into the main narrative and, and, and change this approach to the discipline from the bottom up
2: well thank you very much Nina in amongst your raging army of supporters that you've got <laughs> in the back of this tent here Have you had fun?
1: I have loved it. I was quite polite in my rage, actually. I don't think I went too extreme. Yeah,
2: you didn't swear Um, I
1: didn't swear, and I I do try to be balanced, but I do like the opportunity to just say, oh, my God, can we look at this differently? (laughs) Can we just have another go, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) So hopefully that came across.
2: If you'd like to know more about the subject, then you can start by reading Nina's book, Femina, uh, to which we will have a link in the show notes. It is available in the History of Age bookshop. You can follow Nina on Twitter at Dr. Yanina Ramirez. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We have one more coming for you over the course of the festival. If you've not managed to make it this year, then the festival returns twice in 2024. Those dates are the 12th of April to the 14th of April and the 7th of September to the 22nd of September 2024. And you can sign up to the festival mailing list at GloucesterHistoryFestival.co.uk and follow them on Twitter at GloucesterHistFest. If you have enjoying us, then please do subscribe to us on Patreon. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance and ad-free, invite put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. But until our next rage, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ